my edif eyes are burning. This week, there's new news about the Edmonton Police Funding Formula and the Downtown Recovery Coalition. As long as you accept the premise that new means wholly recycled arguments from the past. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 192, where Edify magazine has released a new cover this week that is unique. I don't know if I should encourage you to go look at it, dear listener, but it does have a city councillor on the cover, Councillor Karen Principe, and her husband, Jean Principe, who, you know, is really well known for his puns during Oilers games. Yeah, I'm going to strongly recommend that our listeners don't go view this unless they... Uh, Let's describe it in vivid detail, Matt. It is the two aforementioned individuals in a bed, half naked, looking longingly at each other. At some point, there's feet. It's all very like pornographic in a way that no one asked for. In a surprising turn for both of them, who, you know, I think lots of people would have been like, are they together? Are they married? They haven't been very public about their relationship. And so this is a very different public approach. And I do wonder how their how their teenagers are feeling about those photos today. Well, their teenagers probably want to burn their eyes out like we burn things in the rapid fire segment. The Edmonton Police Service has released its strategic plan for 2023 to 2026, which adds improving public relations to the list of goals. Compared to the other goals in the document of mounting all officers on unicorns and replacing photo radar funding with a leprechaun's pot of gold, the new goal actually seems quite achievable. Jay Woodcroft, head coach of the Edmonton Oilers, was named the most handsome NHL coach for 2022 by the staff of Gambling.com, who used a beauty measurement app. In Woodcroft's beauty report, the app noted that he, quote, had teeth and, quote, appeared unconcussed. Two factors alone that put him in the top first percentile in the NHL. Jason Kenney told the Canada Strong and Free Conference in Red Deer, Alberta, that he was, quote, never intending to be in this gig for a long time, end quote. The soon-to-be-not-premier noted also that he had predicted COVID-19, including all of its variants, and knew the exact date the Queen would die since he was seven years old. Plus, he's got a super-rare Charizard card that you can't see because his uncle, who was actually a CIA super spy, has it on his super-secret mission in Russia, and he's deep undercover, so you can't call, but he sends letters every day asking for advice about Kung Fu. But actually, I've got a triple black belt, which is what you get when you're even more of an expert than anyone else, And that's why he needs me to help fight the bad guys. But the letters burn up as soon as I get them. And actually, I'm a secret agent, too. But you can't tell anyone because anyway, everyone likes me and even the people that say they don't do. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device, making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. This Tuesday, Mac, I was in Banff doing my uh, semi-annual bike of the 1A. It involves going from Canmore up to the 1A and then back. In total, it's about a 100-kilometer bike ride, Mm -hmm. which was ironic or convenient or 
coincidental, whatever word you want to use, because on Tuesday, council voted to build exactly 100 kilometers of new bike lanes by 2026. Yes, this was a report that came to Urban Planning Committee. It's options to build out the bike network that has been proposed for Edmonton. There were four options on the table, and committee gave endorsement to two of them. The one that got all the headlines, of course, is $170 million to build that 100 kilometers of bike lanes along major commuter routes and in neighborhoods. Uh, this is the one that paths for people and many of the other advocates were really pushing for. Um, they're also going to get a little bit more detail about another option, which is to build 130 kilometers for $130 million, which sounds like a better deal, but means that the full network you know, wouldn't be built out quite as quickly. And so both of those options will come back to council during the fall budget debate. So we're not there yet. This isn't a decision done deal. These things are getting built, but it's a huge step forward for bike lanes in Edmonton. Of course, this plan is not new. This wasn't a motion to, hey, let's build a bunch of new bike lanes. All of these bike lanes, and I continue to say bike lanes, and I will continue to say bike lanes. You can, dear listener, read it as mobility lanes or active use pathways, whatever you want to call them. We're going to call them bike lanes because they come from the bike plan. Right. In the city plan, we outlined exactly how we want our bike network to connect such that cycling could become an option in a city as sprawling as Edmonton. And the chief component that this motion would fund is a thing called district connectors. Essentially, these are the main quote unquote arterial bike lanes, the things where if you are deep south and you want to commute to downtown or you want to go over to Clareview from Woodcroft, these are the district connectors that allow you to get from one place to another place. It's not the last mile network. It's the core network. This connector network is the real alternative to driving, right? It's these district connector routes, these commuter routes that help you to, as you say, maybe get from a, a, an outer neighborhood into downtown that really create options for people. Is that right? In some cases, because we are a sprawling city and we have a lot of suburbs, when these district connectors are completed, there may be a bit of a last mile problem. You may get to that new district, but it may be an industrial area and then you have to cycle on the road a little bit to get to your actual destination. That's the component with part C of this motion. This district connector, that was part A of the motion, and it's the bulk of this $170 million of funding. But council also opted for option C, which was to accelerate certain neighborhood routes. This Mm. is a lot like building the downtown and Strathcona bike grids. It's saying we've identified communities of interest where cycling is most likely to occur, where there's a lot of potential for trips. And let's build out the neighborhood level routes in these areas a little bit further such that we can encourage further people to get out of their cars, and then onto bicycles. And this proposal would do all of this by 2026, right? Which is a pretty rapid acceleration from where we were when the bike plane was first put forward, I think. I remember when the motion was made, we were pretty shocked. This was a pretty stark shift. We've rapidly accelerated our bike lane progress compared to history, Mm -hmm. but we only have around 18 kilometers of protected AAA routes for all ages and abilities. So to add 100 kilometers essentially overnight within three years, that's a huge change. Of course, this may come at the expense of quote-unquote consultation. That was one of the things that was identified at committee as, well, if we want to do thorough consultation on every bike lane, 
we won't have time to do all of these. Is that really a con? Like, does, does the city regularly do public engagement on this kind of stuff? I mean, the vast majority of reports I read say we did not conduct any public engagement on this issue. It even highlights a problem with how we build bike lanes in that we do consult them to death with the idea, honestly, of killing them through consultation. And I think there's no better example of this than the operational funding. If we were to build out this network, administration was very diligent to add that it would cost $11 million of ongoing operational funding to manage this network. That includes things like snow clearing, street sweeping, uh, maintenance, yeah, you know, managing flex bullards, all, all sorts of things like that. Mac, when was the last time we built a road and council had to explicitly approve a motion to operate that road and increase the operational funding for that new road? Yeah, never. That ha- I mean, it never happens in the same conversation, right? It's sort of assumed that that's going to come up when we talk about operational funding in some other context, but never side by side. And I also note that, you know, we're getting into budget now, and this budget is supposed to include carbon accounting. It would seem to me that a motion about a road would have some sort of increase in emissions and an option to build bike lanes. Maybe the construction has some emissions, but after that, we should be reducing emissions, right? Where's that information? All very good questions. Questions we don't quite have the answer to. Like you said, this is not a done deal. The next step for this motion is to come back at budget. And of course, this budget will be a hotly contested budget. There's a lot of competing priorities. Of course, council probably wouldn't love to have a massive tax increase. But with all the things we've talked about over the past few months, there's a lot of things adding up and budget could get quite expensive this year. Indeed. Okay, well, let me ask you just a few follow-up questions about bike lanes, and this will help us get into the next item here. Are these protected bike lanes that we're talking about? Is this 100 kilometers of protected bike lanes or some portion of that? This is the idea. Now, what form it takes, whether it's multi-use paths or separated on-street bike lanes, that remains to be seen. But the idea with this is we are building a quality bike lane network that your kid could use. Okay, and then, you know, what about winter? We're a winter city. Do bike lanes work in the winter, Troy? Mac, I'm appreciating that you're asking for the listener who may have this question, but you know as well as I do that no, winter doesn't matter. There's many a study that proved that temperature does not actually have any material effect on how many people cycle in wintertime. The main thing is the quality of the infrastructure and the operational funding, so clearing this infrastructure. That's part of the operational funding, that $11 million dollars would help clear these in winter to make this a legitimate all-year option. Even excluding the winter, you can cycle roughly 290 days per year in Edmonton without issue, without snow on the ground, without being Mm -hmm. cold, because there's nice fall days, there's summer days. 290 days a year of commuting by bicycle, that's a lot. That's worth this. Yeah, absolutely. We have four seasons in Edmonton. We should celebrate that. Okay, I'll ask you just one more, because it came up a lot this week. $170 million sounds like a lot. Shouldn't we spend that on affordable housing? Yep, probably. We should spend that on affordable housing. But like we've said in the past two episodes, getting $4.5 million to open 60 units of affordable housing can't be done. Just can't be done. So I don't see this as an either or. I'll go further and mention that if you can't afford housing, are you able to afford a car? Would bicycling not be a much more effective 
mode of transportation for you? And would that not allow you so much more upward mobility, so much more potential to, if you could safely commute by bicycle to any job anywhere over the city, cars are expensive. So the idea that this is mutually exclusive with affordable housing came up a lot this week and is on its face completely absurd. Yes, we should fund affordable housing. Yes, we should fund the bike plan implementation. And I will add that the entire 100 kilometers of city connecting infrastructure comes in at a lower bill than a single 50th street overpass for trains. Very good point. There are many projects we spend way more money on that get far less attention than this bike network. The housing thing came up quite a bit this week because of the juxtaposition, of course. So we'll just quickly mention that you know, it was in the morning, Community and Public Services Committee heard from more than a dozen people about lived experience with housing challenges. In an attempt to inform the upcoming updated affordable housing strategy. And then it was the afternoon where they started talking about the bike network plan. And so it was quite interesting to see people who oppose bike lanes automatically online become supporters of affordable housing when, you know, it was crickets before that. I would wager, Mac, that a lot of those people who were suddenly speaking up about affordable housing may not actually be stalwart affordable housing advocates. They may, in fact, be people trolling on Twitter like we see constantly for the Edmonton Police Service. And those people are going to be in an absolute tizzy next week because we finally got documents and details about the new EPS funding formula. Yeah, I will complain very quickly about this. Council had decided previously that we should have agendas posted 10 days before the meeting. So no more posting the agenda right before the week, the weekend and then talking about it on Monday. And the way that administration and, and the clerks, and maybe it's a political thing, so it's maybe not entirely their fault. The way they've been getting around this is to put the agenda up, but to not have the reports there. So we didn't get the, the police reports until today, just a few days before the upcoming meeting. But we got two reports, finally, about Edmonton Police Service funding. The first is a report about the proposed EPS funding formula. So this is something that council had asked administration to bring back, to work with the police service and the commission to develop a revised funding formula and related policy for approval as part of the upcoming budget discussions. So this funding formula is what council seemed to be favoring over uh, a return to the way things used to be done prior to the the, the previous funding formula, which is service packages like everybody else. So that's one report. The funding formula highlights are that the base funding would start at $407 million in 2023, and it forecasts a 0.4% tax levy increase for each of the four years of the next budget cycle. So the takeaway, pretty similar to what the funding formula was in the past. And then the second report, which I think we can talk a little bit more about, Troy, is a jurisdictional scan. So as part of this, council was interested to know, you know, what do we spend on police funding compared to other similarly sized jurisdictions? And we got that report as well, which looked at how much Edmonton spends compared to Calgary, Winnipeg, Regina, the Peel region, and Ottawa, similarly sized municipalities. And the takeaway there is that Edmonton spends significantly more per capita on police than those other regions do. My memory may be failing for me, but back when we were doing the Safer for All report, was one of the takeaways not that Edmonton police funding should be frozen until 
it is in line per capita with comparable cities. That was certainly one of the recommendations of the Safer for All report. Your memory serves you well. We now have a jurisdictional scan that we paid for. Um, I believe it was $38,000 for this shared with the city of Peel. We have this report that says we are unquestionably spending more and we know exactly how much more we're spending compared to other jurisdictions. And in tandem with this, we're also releasing a funding formula that forecasts 0.4% increases for the police for the next four years. Yeah, you're totally right. And the 0.4% is a forecast. We don't know what population growth will look like and some of the factors that are in that funding formula. But it's safe to assume that it's going to go up. And that's that works out to, I think, it's about $12 million a year. Check the math on that. But it's roughly in line with what you you know might expect uh, for the police budget to go up the way that it's gone up in previous years. It's not a coincidence that these two things come together. And the consultant who worked on this uh, uh, on this jurisdictional scan talked about how you can't just look at the per capita number and have that be your takeaway. You have to have other context. And the the two other numbers that they talked about were the average cost per call. So every time the Edmonton Police Service responds to a call, no matter what it is, it costs forty five hundred dollars. 3500 of which comes from taxes. Hold on a second, because we know that 30% of all of EPS's calls for service are equivalent to social work. Mm -hmm. If each call costs $3,500 Mac, $3,500 of rent gets you a lot of house. It does. This is a very good point. The $3,500 is less than other cities. So I guess if you look at it from that point of view, Edmonton's doing better than these other jurisdictions, but there's lots of reasons for that potentially. One being that Edmonton responds to more of these issues, including the mental health calls that you mentioned. They respond to more less complex calls maybe than some of the other police services do. So it drags that average down a little bit. Another number the consultant talked about was the cost per police officer. And he said, you know, you got to look at the budget to really understand what's in the budget to really make sense of whether it's a, a high number or a low number. And, you know, of course, we don't know what's in the budget because we don't get to see what the police spend their money on. We've got this report. This is obviously coming back next week. There's going to be a lot that will be debated. Is council actually deciding on the funding formula next week, or is this something that comes along with budget? So the original motion, right, was that they would develop this funding formula, they would bring it back for council's consideration, and it would be approved as part of the 2023-2026 operating budget deliberations. The recommendation that administration has brought forward for next week is that this revised funding formula policy be approved and replace the existing suspended policy. So you've talked before on the show about how the way our motions work means we could get into trouble here, but somebody could just move the recommendation on Monday and all of a sudden we've committed to a funding formula without any of the other budget context that we're supposed to be getting in the next three months. Also of note in the uh, formula discussion, if this formula and policy were approved, any change or reduction to the formula, so one-time reductions taking away $10 million to uh, divest to other organizations, that would require a non-statutory public hearing in order to change it. Council couldn't do it just by motion. So actually approving this could have pretty significant impacts for the budget discussions because if this was approved, council is quite limited in the middle of budget discussions if they want to take from the police to fund another initiative, say social enterprise or housing, 
Mm-hmm. They would need to schedule another non-statutory public hearing in order to do that. This seems very, very dangerous. And I hope counsel looks closely at that and follows the initial motion path. But like you said, this procedural snafu, this is how we get into trouble. Is very concerning. And I mean, what other purpose does that requirement for non-statutory public hearing have other than to protect police funding? One other thing on the jurisdictional scan, one part of it didn't quite pass the smell test for me. And that is Chief Dale McPhee of the Edmonton Police Service. He had pretty significant involvement in the organization that did this jurisdictional scan. Yeah, that's right. So the organization that was contracted to do this by both the Edmonton Police Commission and the, the Police Service or Commission out in the Peel region is the Community Safety Knowledge Alliance, of which Chief Dale McPhee is both chair and president. So that seems like a conflict of interest, right? We have the police chief of Edmonton who serves as a volunteer on this uh, organization's board that gets a contract to see how well the Edmonton Police Service is doing. It feels, you know, it doesn't doesn't pass the smell test. Now, obviously, it didn't really, I guess, work out in his favor if there was any indication of uh, influence, because it's not like Edmonton ended up with the lowest, you know, per capita spend in the report. In fact, it was significantly higher than everybody else's. Duncan Kinney from Progress Report asked the Edmonton Police Commission about this today at a, a, at a media briefing, and they said he serves as a volunteer at the organization, so McPhee has no financial interest or benefit. And they said, quote, the police chiefs did not write, direct, or otherwise influence the contents of the report. So they feel on firm footing that there was no lines crossed here and there was no conflict of interest. But it does seem a bit uncomfortable for the police chief to be in such a position. Especially given the context of all of the conflicts of interest we've previously talked about with the Edmonton Police Service and the Edmonton Police Commission, namely during the debate around the convoy protests, we had the chair of the Edmonton Police Commission, you know, coming out before public hearing saying the police did nothing wrong. All of these things taken together, they paint a picture of an organization that's very insular Mm -hmm. and aren't doing themselves any favors in terms of openness and accountability. One other thing about this organization, right, the CKSA, they do some work on their own. They have staff. They also work with consultants. The contractor who worked on this report is a guy named Cal Corley. He's previously worked with McPhee back in 2009 when Dale McPhee was president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. And he spoke quite positively about Dale McPhee being hired and chosen as Edmonton's next police chief. So the two of them have a history, for sure. So just to underline that insular sort of relationship that you highlight. Well, one group wants to be quite insular with police, and that's the Downtown Recovery Coalition. You'll recall this is the organization that um, is the equivalent of Prosperity Edmonton for downtown. It's a collection of developers, property owners, and Exactly who you would think would show up to be a downtown organization who put their branding on a thing and gave some asks to city council. This week, they are asking, ostensibly, for more police. I guess the organization is real now, Troy. We've criticized them in previous episodes. They didn't exist until the mayor made a motion that we should give them $5 million, inexplicably. Now they have a website. And they held this news conference today out on 102nd Avenue at 103rd Street, which I want to point out is in the part of 102 Avenue that has remained closed and which you'll recall had quite a bit of debate about whether or not we should close it to vehicles. And I just thought the photo of all of these folks standing on that closed part of the road was 
deliciously ironic because I'm sure many of them were quite opposed to keeping that closed to vehicles. They have this press conference, and as you say, one of their big asks is about safety and security. They want more police, both you know, patrolling downtown at the entrances to LRT stations. They talked about some other stuff like cleanliness and infrastructure, and they talk about the need for more investment into downtown, all while taking zero accountability for the role that they might have played in that. Remember that there are landlords and other people with financial interest in downtown as part of this group who are happy for their their spaces to remain vacant, the exteriors of their buildings to remain hostile, not taking any accountability for that kind of stuff, talking about how it's all in the city to do this. And, you know, they made some lip service in response to criticism from myself and others that they are advocating to the province. But I got to say, Troy, the advocacy from this group is very loudly pointed at municipal leaders and city council. And if they are doing any advocacy toward the province to, you know, maybe spend some of that $13 billion surplus in our city's downtown, they're doing it very, very quietly behind closed doors. Uh, I've seen an email that got circulated around the Downtown Recovery Coalition was sent out to the membership saying, if you are downtown Thursday morning, please walk over. A large crowd will hopefully garner some attention from our, quote, absent city council. That's not advocacy on the province. And to show up, why not at the legislature? Why targeting Edmonton City Council? If I was speculating, I would say perhaps there's a lot of UCP donors on that Recovery Coalition mailing list. And the mayor didn't really seem to have a lot of patience for the Downtown Recovery Coalition pushing city council harder and harder. That's right. He sent them a letter the day before their news conference, actually. It's a six-page letter. Basically reads as a big, you know, I've done what I said, leave me alone kind of thing. He points out in the letter that over the past several years, through things that council has approved and other projects that administration has undertaken, they've invested nearly $300 million dollars in downtown and Chinatown. And I also saw that email where they described city council as absent. And uh, I have to say that was quite hilarious because I feel like we've only been talking about downtown (laughs) and what city council is doing about it for months now with community safety and and all of that kind of stuff. And I just want to say, I remember when Mayor Sohi was sending his asks to the province, you and I both lampooned the $5 million for downtown recovery as, geez, so he get your priorities straight. Why is this making the top asks for the province? And yet it was one of the asks that was granted. So, you know, from our perspective, so he's gone above and beyond in terms of advocacy for what the DRC is requesting. I think it's also, I mean, quite coincidental or intentional, depending on your point of view, that this group is out there you know, carrying water for the Edmonton Police Service. We're about to have this debate about the police funding formula. We're about to go into a pretty contentious budget cycle. And all of a sudden, you've got this group of, you know, business leaders and downtown advocates who are essentially advocating for more money for the police, in contrast with what many of them might have said even publicly in the past about what would actually benefit downtown. I don't think I've heard many of them talk much about boots on the ground prior to, you know, this DRC getting its feet under it. 
Of course, you're going to be writing more about the police and about the DRC in the upcoming weeks as this develops. Like you said, all of these things, they appear to be quite interrelated, and I'm sure we'll be pulling on some of those threads. One of the other threads I want to pull on is the Venn diagram of DRC that seems to oppose useful stuff that I would think actually enhances our downtown vibrancy. And that comes in the form of a motion this week that Councillor Salvador made where she just wanted to get rid of illegal parking lots downtown, not remove all parking lots. We're not war on cars, evil parking. There's just a lot of parking lots in the downtown that are illegal gravel parking lots. They're not permitted to be a parking lot. They're just there and operating illegally. And she said, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of those? UDI, the Urban Development Institute, came out in a statement that said, you know, this is the wrong thing to be focusing on and this is not what we think is the best plan. And UDI, of course, in a Venn diagram, very close with the Downtown Recovery Coalition. And Mac, if I was to say what would increase crime, increase dirt, increase this sort of like broken windows, rough look of downtown, gravel parking lots everywhere, pretty high on that list. Absolutely. I mean, UDI is a member of the DRC. Their logo is listed there as one of the steering committee members. And look, I don't actually think that what Kaylin was saying is false, right? If I read her charitably, she's basically saying that the reason we have these surface lots is because the land isn't financially feasible for a developer to build right now. And this is a problem that Edmonton has faced. We've approved too many really tall towers and not enough shorter towers, which could, you know, use up some of those empty parking lots. So, you know, I I think that's true. Like market conditions don't support building another really tall tower. I also think it's true that we could do more to disincentivize the existence of both legal and illegal surface parking lots. And I'm thinking of Aldrit, for example. They are the only ones in Edmonton who seem to have done something about this. And I, sh- you know, I hope they are benefiting from their reputation. But their empty lots get grass and white picket fences. They put a little bit of money in to make it look decent. If we had some extra taxes, some sort of penalties, some kind of a stick to disincentivize leaving these empty lots as empty lots. That would go a long way and wouldn't necessarily dispute or put into question what UDI is saying here about the market conditions. Having said all of that, the DRC and and the mayor have said basically that $5 million in downtown vibrancy grant money has been spent. I live downtown, Troy. I walk around downtown every day. I'm really failing to see where that money went. Additional money went into two alleys to paint them to look really nice, but our main streets still look like trash, and the property owners aren't doing anything about that. Well, none of this will get resolved, of course, until 2023. The motion that was made at Urban Planning Committee essentially asked administration for a package about how we can accelerate the development on these lots, including the lots that are unpermitted, and that is due back next year. I want to just cover one other quick thing that happened this year. We've been following this issue for what feels like years now, back when Mike Nickel started posting really rude memes about Andrew Knack. Uh, It is the City Council Code of Conduct sanction issue, and the city had proposed a potential solution to this problem. And that solution was, rather than having councillors act as the sanctioners and have to vote 
on sanctions, perhaps it might be better for the integrity commissioner to just dole out the punishment and perhaps allow affected councillors to appeal the ruling. Council debated that earlier today at a special code of conduct subcommittee meeting. And broadly, they said, nah, let's not do that. So they'll continue with the status quo, which is that the integrity commissioner will make a recommendation, but it's up to council to choose whether or not to enforce a sanction. Is that right? That's about right. It sounds like, you know, the status quo works good enough. I think one indicator is that last year when Mike Nickel was achieving sanctions and started involving Jonathan Dennis, the now much maligned uh, former justice minister to his defense, those sanctions hearings did not go very well and embarrassed city council because it seemed like a clown car that uh, was infighting and couldn't even agree on a code of conduct. (laughs) This year, councillor already apologized by the time they got to the sanction hearing and the police came off looking as kind of vexatious as abusing this process and council was able to move on. And I think broadly looking at the way this council behaves, even to the councillors who perhaps might agree with Mike Nickel. I'm thinking of people like Jennifer Rice or Karen Principe or even to an extent Tim Cartmel. These councillors are not the type of people that would have flagrant anger-provoking social media posts. They're, that's not their modus operandi. I'm going to hazard a guess that for the next three years, this council is going to be pretty smooth from a code of conduct perspective. We may get vexatious complaints, but in terms of actual legitimate code of conduct violations that we need to take action on, I'm suspecting it might just be fine. We should assume no more sanction hearings. Got it. Of course, near the end of every episode, you should assume that you will hear one thing in specific, and that is an ad. Do you ever feel like just a number? A digit? A denominator? A decimal? Another cog in the big bank machine? Waiting on hold? Online? never on time and always on your dime like your worth is only calculated by your net worth in a world full of numbers it's nice to know there's a place where you're not one connect first credit union bank on a brighter future well that wraps it up for another week until next week i'm troy i'm mac and we're speaking Speaking municipally. municipally